This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, we'll speak with David Dayan about day one of the post-Trump era, January 20th, 2021. Also, Edward Snowden published a memoir last week. It's called Permanent Record. We'll talk about it with Don Guttenplan. He's editor of The Nation, which published an excerpt. It's called Love at First Bite. First up today, impeachment at last. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, maybe you heard the news. After months of resisting calls for impeachment, Nancy Pelosi finally agreed to authorize and begin proceedings. That was on Tuesday night that she made that announcement. So it's happening. We have impeachment at last. For comment, we turn, of course, to John Nichols. He's national affairs correspondent for The Nation and host of the Next Left podcast. John, welcome back. John, I don't want to show any bias here, but uh, do you have your impeachment tucked yet? <laughs> well, let me just, for those who haven't followed the news for the last few hours, let me just summarize. The whistleblower complaint was released. It's authoritative. It's detailed. It's documented. It says, quote, I have received information from multiple U.S. government officials that the president is using the power of his office to solicit interference from a foreign country in the 2020 election. The interference includes, among other things, pressuring a foreign country to investigate one of the president's main domestic political rivals, close quote. We'd heard a little about that in the past few days, but there was a big surprise in the text of the whistleblower's complaint that was released today. Quote, White House officials told me that they were directed by White House lawyers to remove the electronic transcript from the computer system in which transcripts are typically stored. Instead, the transcript was loaded into a separate electronic system that is otherwise used to distort and handle classified information of an especially sensitive nature, close quote. So we have two elements. We have the crime, abusive power, Trump seeking the help of Ukraine uh, in digging up dirt on an opponent in the upcoming election. And we have the cover-up, uh, putting the record of that phone call into a computer system reserved for uh, top-secret information. The crime, the cover-up, now we have impeachment. Have I missed anything here? Yeah, we need a John Dean. <laughs> yeah. we got to get ourselves a John Dean. All right. I, mean, I, I, believe, I believe there will be one. The only question is, the only question is, will it be Dan Coates? I was thinking Bill. Uh, I was thinking Bill Barr. <laughs> I don't think so. Just kidding. Barr. Just kidding. Yeah, yeah. I don't see that. I don't. <laughs> I just don't see that, man. Uh, I respect where you're coming from, <laughs> and you're, you're you've been trying to redeem Barr for a generation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, I, I think he's too in this thing, I, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> when the when the in the movie, you know, like the, the mob guy yeah. says, you know, it's a nice little country you have here. I would want something bad to happen to it. <laughs> so maybe you could do me a favor. Yeah. Um, when he says, so I'm going to have my attorney general call you. 
that guy doesn't usually turn out to be a stool pigeon. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I think you're right about right. that. So oh, yeah. I hope we're not being I hope we're not being too light about this development. Well, you know, uh, Nancy Pelosi has taken a lot of grief from progressives like you and me for not initiating impeachment for such a long time. But not yesterday and today, some of our friends are saying that as things have turned out, she played it exactly right. She waited until she had an offense the public could easily grasp, until she had the overwhelming majority of the Democratic caucus, including the new first-termers from the purple districts and then she went all in so should we should we uh thank nancy pelosi for waiting all this time yeah i don't know you know it seems to me like when he fired the head of the fbi to shut down investigations into his wrongdoing um you know if you'd moved right then uh Two things I might suggest to you. Number one, I think a lot of people would have seen that as a bad thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And number two, um, yeah, we might have avoided a world of hurt. Um, but uh, with that said, with the suggestion, in my view, that there have been multiple points at which an impeachment was not merely appropriate but necessary, mm-hmm. I will give you your political calculus. Um, yeah. All the things that you've said are true. Uh, the charge is a classic one. And as you know, I've written books about impeachment, and I spent a lot of time looking at, you know, what the founders intended, hopefully, to the extent that you can understand them, and also what kind of has passed muster through the years. And by any measure, uh, impeachment usually move, and ones that are, have meaning and, and have potential to be successful. Uh, and in fact, are successful uh, on the abuse of the office for political purposes. I mean, this is something that people really do understand. Yeah. And quite frankly, it's at the heart of what the Nixon impeachment was about. Yeah. Quite frankly. And I think it's why the Nixon impeachment went so far and got significant bipartisan support, whereas the Clinton impeachment, which uh, went to, you know, personal issues and, and, you know, no matter what you think about him, uh, and it just didn't get the traction. And so I do think you've got the right issue here. Um, using your office to assure or improve your chances of reelection, that's exactly why you created the impeachment power. Mm-hmm. The founders were terrified that an election would create an elected despot or a king for four years. They really feared that after an election, the person who won would see themselves as having freedom to do pretty much whatever they wanted to whoever they wanted in whatever way they wanted for those four years and necessarily to then position themselves for another four years, right, to use the power of the office. So they created impeachment with that very much in mind. The only other thing that they, you know, were guarding against and and mentioned twice in, in the Constitution was the prospect that somebody would try to enrich themselves with foreign <laughs> or domestic resources. And yeah. might bring us to the second article of impeachment. Yeah, yeah, that um, could be the second. Yeah. Good good yeah. idea. So uh, there's a new um, 
a HuffPost YouGov poll that was conducted uh, Tuesday night and Wednesday yesterday. Do you support impeaching Trump and removing him from office? Yes, 47. No, 39. An eight-point margin. The last time they did this, earlier this month, there was just a two-point margin. That's, uh, that's quite a big change, don't you think? I do think it's a big change, and I think it gets to um, a, a, a reality of politics and a reality of impeachment. Remember, impeachment is a political act. Yeah. It's not a legal act. It's a political act. Uh, it hopefully has moral underpinnings and principles that go with it, but it is a political act. And just as in an election, they always say you can't beat someone with no one, right? Yeah. You've you got to have an opponent yeah. if you're going to start polling. That's where it starts to become real. Well, similar with impeachment. You have to have a rationale for it. It has to be a clear rationale that people understand. And then suddenly you're going to see the numbers go up and up and up because there's a tremendous number of people who disapprove of Donald Trump's presidency, profoundly disapprove of it. I mean, the, the ratings, you know, often you're getting into the high 50s for the number of people that just don't like how this guy's being president. Most unpopular uh, president in American history. That's right. But a substantial portion of them are still like, yeah, I really don't like this guy, but I haven't liked a lot of presidents along the way, and so I don't think you necessarily impeach him. But if you attach to that high disapproval level that, that lots of people who aren't very excited about defending this guy, a really credible argument for why he shouldn't continue in office, uh, like he's literally trying to you know, use the power of the U.S. government to manipulate a foreign country into doing opposition research for him. Um, that's, that's where you suddenly, you know, people are like, yeah, that makes sense. And to my mind, I don't know exactly what they'll do. I do think that uh, Pelosi would not have jumped into this if she didn't think she could get a House vote for impeachment. Yeah. And, and also Pelosi is a very, very smart politician. She is the daughter of a Baltimore ward poll. You know, I mean, these are people who actually count votes before they do things. Yeah. And so my sense is that in addition to believing she would have the votes, you know, once the process goes forward for impeachment, if the arguments are there, blah, blah, blah. Um, also, I think she had calculated that there would not be a political penalty for this, that this would not be something that Democrats would be punished for. Now, you and I both know that impeachment should be done even if there are political penalties. It's a, this is how we maintain the basic underpinnings of constitutional governance. But when politicians are engaged in a political act, they will think about viability. And I think the polls are telling us something that we already knew by the fact that Pelosi moved on this, and that is that she thinks, I would argue, you know, that she thinks this is something they need to do, without a doubt. But she also thinks this is something that doesn't give Donald Trump some big boost. It doesn't yeah. make his circumstance better. In fact, I will argue, to the extent that you want to go there, um, that impeachment unquestionably will be a political good for the Democrats. Well, of course, not everyone agrees with you about that. Impeachment should terrify us. Was 
What Frank Bruni wrote yesterday in his column in the New York Times, he says impeachment would mean will mean the continued, relentless, overwhelming focus on Donald Trump and his antics and his inane tweets. He would win in the short term and all Americans would lose because most of the oxygen in Washington will be consumed by the ghastly carnival of this Barker. The argument here, of course, is impeachment puts Trump where he likes to be in the center of everything. And we should be talking not about Trump scandals, but about, you know, the real agenda for 2020, Medicare for all, free college tuition, a $15 minimum wage, a Green New Deal. That's what's really important to the actual lives of real Americans. That's the best way to remove Trump from office. What do you think about that? Over the last three years, John, when people have been given, three or four years, when people have given a chance to talk about thoughtful policy provisions and important things that must be done, or to rant and rave about Donald Trump, um, what's your experience? <laughs> My experience? We, we tried doing a show called An Hour Without Trump, where we just talked about the issues. It was our lowest rated show of the year. Okay, so there you go. So whether we like, and I actually think he's right about a lot of this. You know, we, we certainly, you know, the climate issues are pretty serious. Automation is a really big deal that we're not even talking about. Got a whole bunch of wars that we shouldn't be fighting. You know, I mean, there's yeah. all, there really are big issues to talk about. No question of that. But whether we like it or not, Donald Trump is going to fill the space, right? This is, this is what he does. Um, it's why he is where he's at today. And the biggest mistake that Democrats, progressives, the, the New York Times editorial page tends to make is to try and deny that, to try and deny that reality, reality and to say, oh, you know, we could, we'll just switch the topic over to the other thing. That doesn't happen. It, it hasn't happened. It hasn't happened now for the better part of four years. And so I think it's time to get over that. It's not... It isn't that we can't talk about the issues. I think they're vital, and I think that the issue differences may well define who gets the Democratic nomination to challenge Trump. Yeah. Frankly, a vision of where you might go. But at the end of the day, if Donald Trump survives impeachment, and I suspect he will be impeached but survive the trial, if that happens, the 2020 race will be about Donald Trump, whether you want him and his aiders and abettors to continue in office. Now, if Donald Trump wasn't impeached and there was no trial and none of this happened, the 2020 presidential race would be about Donald Trump and his aiders and abettors. Yes. Right? So if we accept that reality, then what the Democrats are doing here is exactly the right thing. They are saying, yes, this this is so real. This is so serious. We move to impeach this guy. We're going to take a month, roughly now. We're going to gather up a whole bunch of information. We're going to write a handful of articles of impeachment. I would suggest probably a Ukraine-oriented one, an uh, emoluments-oriented one, and a cover-up one. Uh, and so I think it'll be very similar to, to Watergate. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll have three. Not everybody will support all three. That's fine. You have you know, kind of one driving one, which will probably be the Ukraine one. Um, you will get your votes in the House Judiciary Committee. You will get it through the House of Representatives. It will go to the Senate. At that point, 
um, you will have a trial. It could be very fast and just a show trial and a joke, and, and they dismiss it right away. Uh, could take some time. I suspect McConnell will try to deal with it quickly. And at that point, at that point, you will have uh, a clarity, right, mm-hmm. that the people who are on one side want to get rid of Trump, and they want to get rid of the people that help Trump. They want to get rid of Susan Collins if she votes to keep Trump there. They want to get rid of Cory Gardner if he votes to keep Trump there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it will be the clearest election in modern times. I mean, the, the clearest choice, no doubt about it. And, uh, and it will be a definitional election for the future of the United States. What that might do, my friend, is dramatically increase turnout. We might actually see you know, what we've wanted for a long time in America, where you actually get a 60, 70% turnout, you know, where people, it's very clear what this whole thing is about. And um, what do you know, my friend, about increased turnout? High turnout elections help the Democrats. That's why the Republicans base their campaigns on vote suppression. Bingo. (laughs) (laughs) So with all due respect, um, Donald Trump has the potential now to be the first president ever to be impeached. To run for re-election, right? Yes. You know, that yes. Andrew Johnson had dropped out. Richard Nixon quit. He was in his second term anyway. Clinton was in his second term anyway, right? We, we have never had this happen. And so my sense is that we are certainly in unprecedented, somewhat uncharted times. But my bet is, as somebody who's covered elections around the world and elections that really mattered to people, like the Scottish independence referendum and, you know, votes in, the first vote in South Africa after apartheid. Um, in a moment where things really, really matter to people, and it doesn't, I'm not comparing these things, I'm just telling you, you know, where there's a sense that this is big, this could define a country. Um, you see a lot more young people voting. You see a lot more energy around the election. Uh, and, you know, frankly, as a small-D Democrat, as somebody who really does think that this country ought to be defined by the will of the people, I suspect that we're now on a trajectory where we're going to have a 2020 election of that sort. Unless, of course, Mitt Romney saves us and decides to actually impeach this guy. (laughs) Uh, I mean, remove the guy. Yes, yes, remove the guy. Uh, If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with John Nichols, author of a book about impeachment and uh, national affairs correspondent for the nation. Uh, Liz Holtzman reminded us on CNN yesterday that the Nixon impeachment proceedings were the only successful ones in American history, the only ones that led to the removal of the president, in this case by by resignation. Uh, And she emphasized that how you do the hearings is extremely important. And she said it is a mistake to start with the House Judiciary Committee holding public hearings. That committee has more than 40 members. Each of them gets to ask questions. Some of them grandstand. Some of them are not very good at it. The way Watergate worked was they started with a select special committee. In this case, it was in the Senate. Um of a small number of people, I think it was seven, and they had a big professional staff of attorneys and investigators and prosecutors. And the staff did most of the work of gathering the information and then conducting the uh, the uh, first round of questioning of witnesses. 
And only then did members of the special committee get to do follow-up questions, and only then was the whole thing sent to the House Judiciary Committee. And their main job was to agree on articles of impeachment and and vote on them. Um, right now, there are six different committees that are have been charged by Nancy Pelosi with considering their part in an impeachment inquiry. What do you think is the best way to proceed? Is the Judiciary Committee under Jerry Nadler the right starting point for this? Yes. And the all, everything you just said, and I have tremendous respect for Elizabeth Olson, but everything you just said made me weary. <laughs> getting tired. Um, I, I, I'm sorry to say, uh, Watergate was different. It's not the same thing. Many of the charges are the same, but this is different. Um, as, as bad as Richard Nixon was, you had to get to the tapes, right? Yeah. You know, you had to. You were struggling going to court and all that stuff. Donald Trump just released the transcript. I mean, you, you got to fast forward there, my friend. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're to the point where we got a lot of this stuff. It is amazing. Um, yeah. So uh, what I would argue is this. Uh, there are six committees working. Some of them have been working since virtually the day Trump came into the White House. Uh, they got a lot of material. Uh, I suspect that, that uh, Pelosi will give them a timeline. And, yeah. in fact, I suspect it's already happened. And that timeline will say that as of a date certain, you, have to, you can have more hearings. You do what you want, but you have to move your files over, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's going to be a long weekend over at Jerry Nadler's house. Um, and... <laughs> They will look through those files, they'll do a final review, and then probably, not certainly, they will settle for a handful of gettable, doable articles of impeachment. That may disappoint some people, it may disappoint me, because I happen to think there's a lot of things I'd like to impeach this guy for. But I suspect it will be Ukraine uh, and things related to that. I suspect there may be emoluments, because frankly, I think they relate. Yeah. Uh, And then finally, I do think there's a cover-up charge. Yeah. My sense is that they will then rather quickly... Uh, hold like a handful of hearings, you know, on these issues, let people testify on both sides, uh, let the Republicans rant and rave and say their official message, which is, I have no idea what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you see all these Republicans going on TV, I don't even know if we're in an impeachment inquiry. <laughs> but let them say that, let them say whatever they want, let them right. rant and rave, move it fast. Um, ideally, by early November, uh, have three articles of impeachment, uh, move them to the floor of the House, that's where you can have a big, long, I don't care, you can have a 10-day debate, right? Mm-hmm. You can, or five-day, whatever. Let everybody really do their best, because this is important. It's the real thing. And uh, then once that's done, have your votes. Uh, ideally, before Thanksgiving, um, have this thing done. It's done in the House. That's it. And then it moves to the Senate. And, you know, ha- Merry Christmas, Mitch McConnell. <laughs> Uh, we've only got we've only got a couple minutes left here, but I want to run past you the alternative scenario of my neighbor Rob. Um, he so we're going to have assuming we get articles of impeachment voted on by the House and the trial begins in the Senate. Mitch McConnell uh, sees that the Democrats have a good chance of taking control of the Senate because of Trump, Trump's crimes. He can see the Democrats could win in Arizona, Colorado, and Maine, and Hold on to Alabama. So, what's Mitch? Maybe he even sees that they could win in Kentucky. And maybe even in Kentucky, his own state. So, what is he going to do at this point? How about this scenario? He pressures Trump into resigning with the carrot that Pence will take office, pardon Trump and his family, the way Jerry Ford pardoned Nixon. (laughs) 
Uh, and then Pence will become the candidate running as the incumbent. How do you like my neighbor Rob's alternative scenario? Great. I don't have any problem with it. That's how it usually happens with impeachment, right? The person resigns rather than face, face it. That's totally fine. I don't happen to think Mitch McConnell could convince Donald Trump to do that. But if he does, fantastic. And, um, and, and suddenly, suddenly, uh, Mike Pence, starts to look a lot like Jerry Ford to me. I think he might even achieve a similar election result in the following election. <laughs> and with all due respect, um, Mike Pence is an incredibly unappealing person, um, has far less political skills than Donald Trump does. Yeah, as, I understand, as I understand, at the moment that Mike Pence was chosen by Trump to be the candidate, vice presidential candidate, it looked like he was going to lose his, campaign, his re-election yeah. campaign in Indiana. He's a ridiculous man, okay? <laughs> and, um, and if that's where Mitch McConnell wants to stake it, uh, fantastic. <laughs> All I can tell you is impeach, the, the point of impeachment, right, isn't to punish people. And so you want to pardon people. I, I don't like that, but, you know, so be it. The point of impeachment isn't to punish people. It's to get somebody out of office who shouldn't be there. Donald Trump should not be the president of the United States, period. And... Um, I will tell you two final things because I know we're almost out of time. Right. It's really important. Number one, um, how many days do you think it would take Donald Trump to turn on Mike Pence? <laughs> I'm saying two. Okay. And at that point, Mike Pence has not only Democrats against him, but he's got Trump, you know, tearing into him, right, which is a disaster for him. Uh, I think it's, I think you really have the potential, and this is the second part of it, um, of a, just a blowout election where people are, are sort of like, this thing is just such a horrible mess. The Trump people are so disappointed, they don't even vote. Um, and so Pence is left with, you know, the 20% of people that really are hardcore religious conservatives, that more power to them. Um, and you got a pretty and good chance that you might actually have a realigning definitional election where the American people vote for something different. A realigning election in 2020. John Nichols writes about impeachment at thenation.com. John, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today. Nothing to cheer people up like a little impeachment. <laughs> I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, Edward Snowden just published a memoir, and the CIA is suing him for doing it. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. <laughs> It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, impeachment politics in California, David Dan reports. But first, Edward Snowden published a memoir last week. It's called Permanent Record, and The Nation published an excerpt. It's called Love at First Bite, B-Y-T-E. For comment, we turn to Don Guttenplan. He's editor of The Nation. Don, welcome back. Great to be back, John. Well, Edward Snowden opens his memoir, I Used to Work for the Government, Now I Work for the Public. That change, he says, quote, got me into a bit of trouble at the office. 
The book was published this week on Tuesday simultaneously in more than 20 countries, and the nation excerpt appears pretty much simultaneously. The book's existence was a secret until it was announced on August 1st by Macmillan and Metropolitan Books and Snowden himself, who tweeted that day, I just completed an international conspiracy across 20 countries, and somehow the secret never leaked, close quote. When and how did you find out about the book? Was it before that tweet on August 1st? It was probably the day before that tweet on August 1st. So when I... um this is a, a perhaps curious detail, but it happens to be the truth. When I came to New York to take over as editor of The Nation, I didn't have a place to live. So I stayed with an old friend of mine uh, who had been my boss a long time ago at Pantheon Books, Sarah Burstell, ah. who's now the editor-in-chief of Metropolitan Books. And uh, she was being very mysterious, but I was too jet-lagged to notice until eventually she let me in on the secret. Well, until now, Snowden has always said, I am not the story. What the government was doing was the story. But, but now he's written 432 pages about himself, several of which are in The Nation magazine this week. I should say that I think it's a really interesting, excellent book. What is in the book is who he actually is, which turns out to be someone very different from the picture painted in the mainstream media and in all the media around the time that he made his revelations back in 2013. What's not in the Nation excerpt but is in the book and which came as a kind of a revelation to me and which I allude to in my editor's note in the Nation is that you know, people, uh, particularly his critics, have tried to paint Snowden as some kind of un-American. And what really emerges in the book is how deeply American he is and how deep his roots go. You know, I.F. Stone used to say that he always felt a little uneasy singing that line about land of the pilgrim's pride, land where my fathers died, because his ancestors had only just come over from Russia, as, as my ancestors had only just come over from uh, Austro-Hungary. But Snowden's ancestors came on the Mayflower. In fact, you know, the the poem, The Courtship of Miles Standish, which was a Longfellow poem that people of my parents' generation used to have to recite in schools. Well, John Alden, who's the man in the poem, advised to speak for yourself, John, uh, by Priscilla Mullins, the, the woman he's courting on behalf of his friend Miles Standish, but whom he's fallen in love with. Those two are Edward Snowden's ancestors. He's a direct descendant. Uh, and he also says in the book that that's on his mother's side. On his father's side, the Snowdens came in the 17th century. They, his, one of his ancestors, Richard Snowden, was there to greet William Penn when he landed at Penn's Landing. And that the family used to, they had a grant from King Charles II for all of these acres of what became Anne Arundel County, which today includes the headquarters of the National Security Agency. So, you know, the idea... Um, that this person was someone who would act impulsively or lightly and who didn't have a deep sense, that not just of American history, but of his own role in American history is completely dispelled by this book. And I suppose that, to me, was the, the first big revelation. Well, let's talk about the Nation excerpt from Snowden's book, Permanent Record. It's called Love at First Bite. And 
I think it's my favorite part of the book. In some ways, it's also the most significant and, and memorable. It's about his youthful enthusiasm for home computers. Tell us about this period that in the nation he calls one brief and beautiful stretch of time that coincided almost exactly with my adolescence. The section we printed is a section about a young boy, as he was then, falling in love with computers and then falling in love with the Internet and discovering this kind of wide-open, completely free atmosphere where you could pretend to be anything you want. You know, there's the famous cartoon, Nobody Knows You're a Dog on the Internet. Well, nobody knows you're a 12-year-old boy either. And Snowden was learning as fast as he could. And, you know, given his particular gifts, that was incredibly fast. How to build computers, how to program computers, how to understand computer language, how not just to play games, but to hack them. And he would, he would send queries out in the early days of the Internet or to people who would be professors of computer science, for example. And he'd ask them, you know, how do I fit this processor or what do I do this next step? I'm, I'm stumped trying to build this thing. And he would get back incredibly helpful step-by-step -step advice from people who had no idea they were corresponding with a 12-year-old boy. There's a remarkable quote here. To this day, Snowden writes, I consider the 1990s online to have been the most pleasant and successful anarchy I've ever experienced. What did you think about that? I thought that's a really significant remark for lots of reasons. One is because Snowden, this person who's now become, you know, subversive number one, was someone who signed up to join the army after 9-11, um, who in his online adolescence going through shedding his chameleon skin persona after persona was basically a kind of a right-wing libertarian making lots of arguments in favor of guns trying to say things to provoke people and one of the points he makes is that uh, that because there was no permanent record because nobody knew who you were because people spoke through personas and aliases that were everybody acknowledged that they were doing this uh, and there was no effort the government and corporations had not yet forced people to link their online personalities to their real-world identities he could take outrageous positions but then abandon him abandon them when he grew out of them part of what he's talking about is his own arc of development from being a kind of right-wing libertarian who wasn't really concerned about power at all and certainly not concerned about the government's power, uh, to someone who was woken up through his own experiences and became incredibly concerned about that. And part of the reason he's concerned about it is because he sees the he saw the end of that freedom that had meant so much to him. He saw the end of the freedom to make mistakes online and to not be held accountable for them, to be able to just grow out of them. And he also writes of his youth... This is one position I think he still maintains today. I fully supported defensive and targeted surveillance. He's implying a sharp distinction here. What's the other kind of surveillance that he's against? The kind he's against is what he calls bulk collection. And that's the kind that he revealed. Again, to me, that was the other, the second most powerful revelation of the book. I mean, I had followed the Snowden's revelations pretty closely when they were published by The Guardian. Uh, I was living in England at the time, and it was front-page news every day. 
But I have to say that until I read Permanent Record, I really had no idea how bad it is, because that's the point. I mean, he has a whole chapter describing this program, X Keystroke, which essentially allows the government to capture in real time everything you're doing at your terminal, everything that's being done within view of your terminal's microphone or, or camera, and then it, it archives it all so it can, it can be examined later. And as Snowden points out, it's not just, you know, the sort of embarrassing, you know, softcore porn searches or medical searches that constitute a lot of what people want to do in private on the Internet. It's everything you've ever done, everything you've ever looked up, everyone you've ever emailed, uh, every old, you know, connection you've ever tried to search for. And his point is that they now have all of that. They have vast data capabilities for mining it. And if they want to lean on you, and if you are a Supreme Court justice, a senator, a president, a presidential candidate, the, your entire private life is stored and offered for leverage to those in power. And that's a terrifying prospect. The book also gives us a lot of insight, or at least a lot of information about Snowden's life today as a resident of Moscow, he's still charged as the Obama administration charged him with violating the Espionage Act, giving secrets to the enemy, which is kind of a strange charge since the people who received the information he revealed were the people of the United States. They're not supposed to be the enemy. (laughs) Well, (laughs) there are a lot of absurdities here. I mean, just just before um, we began this interview, John, I got a, a press release from the ACLU because the Justice Department today sued Snowden and his publishers over permanent record because he didn't submit it for pre-publication oh. review to the NSA. Uh, <laughs> and the nation is also guilty of this, I believe. Well, we're, we're guilty. We haven't been sued yet, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad to know the ACLU is already on the case. I mean, it's, it's important. You know, we make light of it, but this is a big deal. I will say that it's important to note, and Snowden notes, that the Obama administration, you know, went after him incredibly hard. And unlike Chelsea Manning, who was eventually pardoned, you know, there were, there were no talks. There were no, there were no negotiations. There was no discussion about the fact that he performed this incredible public service of you know, revealing what this rogue intelligence agency, the NSA, had done to us against the law, against the Constitution, and is still doing it. When it was revealed that the NSA during the Bush administration was conducting warrantless wiretapping on American citizens, which is completely against the law, what they did was they changed the law to make it legal. Obama never stopped this. He never acknowledged that Snowden had performed an enormous public service. They, they let Chelsea Manning rot in prison for years. So I think it's important to note that although Snowden can be perhaps difficult to deal with, I mean, I, we found the process of, of obtaining these excerpts difficult. I gather that the process of producing the book in secret was incredibly difficult. They, they, it was only written and edited on air gap computers, i.e. machines that were never connected to the Internet. Um, so that meant that things couldn't be just emailed. They had to be 
you know, carried by thumb drive or some other mechanism. I don't, I, I, I'm not privy to the exact details, but nothing was sent over the internet. There were no electronic copies. When we started excerpting the book, we were not given an electronic copy. We were given hard copy, which we had to scan and then, you know, transform into editable copy so that we could edit it electronically. You, you begin to think this is ridiculous, but then you remember that they're really after this guy. And that if they catch him, they'll put him in prison for the rest of his life at best. You know, under the Trump administration, you have to say that would be the best case outcome. Trump himself and also Secretary of State Mike Pompeo have both said execution would be the proper way to deal with Edward Snowden. So you're absolutely right. He may have a comfortable life in Moscow right now, but we can't be sure that that's going to last forever. Closing thoughts. Closing thoughts. Well, I think if I'm a Democratic president, I should pardon Snowden fairly early uh, and, and be grateful for what he's revealed. I think uh, if, if Trump gets four more years, then Snowden's going to be toughing it out in Moscow for four more years. And I suppose hoping that the Russians continue to believe that the propaganda value of having him uh, is worth whatever irritation they think it causes you know, their friends in the White House. Edward Snowden's memoir published this week is called Permanent Record. The excerpt published in The Nation magazine is called Love at First Bite, B-Y-T-E. Don Guttenplan, thanks for publishing this and thanks for talking with us today. It's a pleasure, John. Thank you. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, after impeachment, after the 2020 election, what should we do on day one of the post-Trump era? That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, rising up with Sonali. But first, impeachment and what's next? For that, we turn to David Dayan. He's executive editor of The American Prospect. David, welcome back. Thanks, John. Well, you write at prospect.org that the tipping point for Nancy Pelosi's agreement that it's time to move to impeachment was not the news of that phone call the president made to Ukraine in July. What was it? Well, I mean, ostensibly it was, it was the phone call, but I think this was just sort of the, the last straw uh, for a number of Pelosi's fellow uh, caucus members who had been really hearing it on the campaign trail out, you know, at town hall meetings all August, that the inaction of the House Democratic Caucus was untenable. It was, it was making them look weak. It wasn't uh, driving the agenda. It, it uh, just sort of almost made the Democrats an accomplice to the lawlessness going on in the White House. And uh, it was actually starting to threaten their re-election chances uh, and, and even their chances of 
of winning the nomination of their party. There are these primaries all over the country, 110 of them or so. Uh, and impeachment was going to be a factor in, in those, those primary races. So Pelosi's hand was forced by the inability of her sort of strategy in 2019 uh, to, to really be effective. So let's look for a minute at the first-term members of Congress from the formerly Republican districts who we are told were the key people who switched from opposing impeachment to favoring it, and that's what made the difference to Nancy Pelosi. If we look at Orange County, you know, the historic bedrock of Republican voting in California, uh, Katie Porter, first-term Democrat from Irvine, was the first to come out for impeachment, actually months ago. Uh, Harley uh, Rauda of Laguna Beach and Mike Levin of San Juan Capistrano, Capistrano announced their support for impeachment after Katie Porter, but <clears throat> also months ago. The lone holdout in Orange County was Gil Cisneros from Fullerton, but on Monday he became the last freshman from Orange County to back an inquiry, and in northern L.A. County, the other Katie, Katie Hill, elected from a Republican district that runs from you know, Lancaster and Valencia out to Simi Valley, she came out for impeachment on Tuesday. So really, in, in Republican Orange County, there was already a lot of, of pressure on Nancy Pelosi to move towards impeachment. And there were a couple of holdouts, and they did change on Monday and Tuesday. Yeah, I mean, Katie Porter came out very early, and that was notable because that was a Trump district. Uh, you know, Levin's district is a little more, a uh, little more democratic, but the Cisneros op-ed, the op-ed that you were talking about, which doesn't just include Cisneros, but there were seven, uh, uh, freshman frontline Democrats. These are the majority makers, the ones that Pelosi spends most of her time trying to protect. Uh, and, and all of these seven that were in that op-ed have, uh, national security backgrounds in one form or another. Uh, Cisneros is a veteran. Uh, there are others who are members of the intelligence community. Uh, when they came out with that op-ed, uh, that, that was really the end of the road. The, the, the writing was on the wall at that point. Uh, and I don't think they would have come out with it if Pelosi uh, didn't, didn't have advance warning or, or bless the process in some way. Uh, it was obviously untenable where, where Pelosi's strategy was taking the House Democratic Caucus. Remember, she, she wanted to sort of wrap up the election. She was talking about this. I, I, I'm going to have the, the election and the majority wrapped up by November of this year, hmm. <laughs> a year before the election. Uh, and, and this was threatening that. Uh, just, just, this, it, it just this inaction uh, uh, on the part of the House Democrats was was really giving giving Pelosi a lot of problems, and uh, so Cisneros coming out in that op-ed was really uh, a critical moment. Well, now that we have impeachment proceedings on the way, uh, some people are saying impeachment should terrify us. I'm quoting especially here New York Times columnist Frank Bruni, who wrote yesterday, impeachment should terrify you because it would mean a continued, relentless, overwhelming focus on Trump's antics and inane tweets. He will win in the short term and all Americans will lose 
because as long as most of the oxygen in Washington is consumed by this ghastly carnival barker, there's too little left for the nation's very real problems. He's talking here, of course, about, you know, the Green New Deal, uh, uh, $15 minimum wage, Medicare for all. Those are the things the Democrats should be focusing on, not on Trump's uh, misconduct. Do uh, you think Frank Bruni is right about that? No, I completely disagree. Um, it, it's beyond clear that the person holding up progress in Washington is Mitch McConnell. Uh, and I'll give you an example. Just the day after Nancy Pelosi puts forward this impeachment inquiry, uh, amid Republicans crying, this is going to block us from legislative progress, this is going to take up all the oxygen in the room, all of this, uh, Democrats put on the floor a bill called the Safe Banking Act that they've wanted to put uh, 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 into law since 2014. And what it would do is allow marijuana-related businesses to uh, operate with access to the financial system. Right now, because the drug is illegal at the federal level, banks are wary of operating with with marijuana-related businesses. And it's, uh, it creates a real, real danger. I mean, you have uh, these, these multi-billion dollar industry operating in cash, uh, paying their taxes with giant sacks of money. Uh, it's, it's, it, it fosters crime. Uh, so they put this bill on the floor, and they got 91 Republicans to agree with it. It, wow. it had an um, um, overwhelming veto-proof majority. And this passed the day after the impeachment inquiry, which was supposed to be so divisive. Uh, and the only reason that it's not law today is Mitch McConnell. He won't put it on the floor. Mm-hmm. So this whole idea that it's, it's the Democrats who are, are threatening progress, who are, are stopping it at every turn, it, the lie is put to that by the fact of the Safe Banking Act. And, uh, you know... I, I feel like now the Democratic candidates are really, uh, in 2020, freed up to, to talk a little less about impeachment because they don't have to push Nancy Pelosi to, to finally pull the trigger. Now they can talk about their agenda and, and, and say, once we get, uh, uh, once Trump exits the White House, Here's all of the things that we can bring to you. Well, thank you for that. And let's talk about all the things that the Democrats could do the day that Trump's successor takes office, January 20th, 2021, day one. The prospect has a big uh, uh, project underway called the Day One Agenda. Uh, What is on your Day One Agenda? And tell us a little bit more about this project. Well, that's right. Uh, uh, We uh, identified uh, numerous meaningful actions that could be taken by a new president on day one without having to pass any new legislation whatsoever. Uh, These are all based on laws that have already been passed by Congress, authority that has already been granted to the executive. And uh, once you know, you look at it under those terms, it's, it's amazing what can be done. Uh, uh, you know, without a single new law, the next president can cancel student debt, can lower prescription drug prices, break up the banks, give everybody who wants one a, a simple bank account through the post office, uh, uh, 
fight corporate power with anti-monopoly rules, protect farmers from price discrimination, uh, close all kinds of tax loopholes, actually audit the rich again, uh, hold CEOs accountable, make, um, we mentioned marijuana, you can make that legal without passing a new law at the federal level. Uh, you can you can uh, get, do a, a solid down payment on the Green New Deal by reducing greenhouse gas emissions and much, much more. And so we put together 11 separate articles that detailed all of these things. And then we sent a questionnaire to all the presidential candidates asking what they would commit to uh, from these executive actions. And I really think that that is a way to talk about the 2020 race that hasn't been done before. I mean, uh, all of these debates ask the, the presidential candidates what they might want to pass in legislation, and none of the questions are, what do you actually want to do with the office that you can do on day one? Yes, I mean, it is uh, It is astounding. I mean, the list that you just read would amount to, uh, you know, a kind of revolution in the United States. And one of the points you make at, at the, uh, the prospect.org is that the government is one of the world's largest purchasers of goods and services, and that alone creates all kinds of possibilities. What what can you do just with the purchasing power of the federal government? Absolutely. So uh, you know, the the as as a purchaser, the federal government can set standards for who they buy goods and services from, and considering practically every major company in the world sells the government something or other. You can use that to really make changes to labor law, make changes to uh, corporate practices, corporate governance. Uh, the possibilities are limitless. The government also manages just giant pieces of federal land. And you can, you can change the standards for what you do or not do, like giving fossil fuel leases uh, and permits out. Uh, and, and that would be a major change. I mean... Uh, once you start thinking about the the abilities of the executive, and we call this using presidential power for good, because you know we've seen three years plus now of using presidential power for for evil, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, with 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 Trump, we've seen uh, uh, the way in which he has uh, expanded and aggrandized executive power. But all we're talking about in this series is a president doing the thing that is definitionally their constitutional responsibility, and that is taking care that the laws are faithfully executed. There are all these laws, this sort of hidden agenda, hiding in plain sight, and all a president has to do is enact them. We've only got about two or three minutes left here. What kind of response have you gotten from the candidates when you ask them about their day one agenda? Well, we were very happy to get uh, a number of responses from presidential candidates, Senators uh, Warren and Sanders, uh, and Congressman O'Rourke. We were very receptive to many of the pieces uh, that, that, that we sent them. We sent them 30 questions in all wow. uh, of different things that they could do. do. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, we've seen uh, publicly... People like Kamala Harris say they, that she would take executive action to lower drug prices. Uh, we've seen Amy Klobuchar say she would take action on several anti-monopoly rules. So uh, it really runs the gamut that, that people, you know, candidates are thinking about this stuff. It's just the media hasn't bothered to ask them that much. 
uh, and we're trying to change that. Uh, has Joe Biden said anything about uh, a higher minimum wage, uh, pay equity by executive action, uh, et cetera? Well, uh, Joe Biden did not return our questionnaire, and uh, I guess I'll just have to leave it at that. Um, you know, we're going to keep going with this series. This was for our fall issue. Uh, however, uh, the response that we've gotten was sufficient that we're going to keep talking about it. The, the, the things that, that uh, the president can do administratively, the personnel appointments he can make, uh, or she. And, uh, you know, Joe Biden will have many more opportunities to tell us what he can do. But I, I hope he gets these questions in a debate as well. And if our listeners want to find out more about the day one agenda uh, pa- package at the American Prospect, where can they find it? Yes, so you go to prospect.org slash day-one-agenda, and that's all spelled out, not the number one. So prospect.org slash day-one-agenda. And uh, do you have the updates on what different candidates are saying there? Absolutely. So uh, what we did was we did all of these articles, and at the bottom of the articles are sidebars that talk about what uh, we found out from the questionnaires uh, and what what the various candidates would commit to uh, within uh, the uh, various executive actions that we put forward. So we're not just talking about impeachment. We are talking about the day one agenda. David Dayen, read about the day one agenda at prospect.org. David, thanks so much for talking with us today. All right, John, thank you. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guest, John Nichols. He talked about impeachment. D.D. Guttenplan commented on Edward Snowden's new memoir, Permanent Record. There's an excerpt in the new issue of The Nation. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, Rising Up with Sonali. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed any part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com for more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.